Welcome to the Conflict Tipping Podcast with Dr. Laura May. Hello and welcome to the Conflict Tipping Podcast from Mediate.com, the podcast that explores social conflict and what we can do about it. I'm your host, Laura May, and today I have with me Juan Diaz-Prince, Acting Director for Inclusive Peace Processes and Reconciliation at the U.S. Institute for Peace, and I would like to say a friend. So welcome, Juan. Thank you, Laura. Thank you very much for having me here today. I'm very pleased to have you here. And so I am going to let Juan talk a little bit about himself and his history. But first, I'm going to say a little bit about how I know him, because Juan was actually a big inspiration for me in the mediation and peace process world, because he was actually my professor. And so I went along and learned about sort of peace negotiation and mediation from him. And it really did change how I saw myself and the world and our possibilities. So thank you very much to Juan for that. <laughs> I can blame him for my time in the mediation world and it's going to be great to hear from him today. So let's start off then. So Juan, how did you end up in the conflict transformation field? So when I was doing my PhD on inter in international relations and sanctions regime, I was working on the conflict on Cuba, the United States and the EU. And at that time, the war in Bosnia was coming to a close and they were implementing the Dayton Peace Accords. And there was an opening for an intern in the office of the international mediator for Bosnia and Herzegovina. And I heard about it from a friend of a friend of a friend. And back then there weren't that many positions available in the world of mediation. Mediation was a really, it was like a baby. It was a nascent area of study and activity. Usually mediation was the purview of high level di diplomats. But okay, I got this job as an intern. And I remember the first day in the mediation office, I arrived and there was so much energy. People were not talking about the war they were talking about how to solve it and how to implement and how to meet people. And it was such, such a positive energy. And I was just so blessed to be, to be an intern in such, in such an office. And I went from being an intern to being an assistant, to being a, an advisor. And slowly I worked my way up and I can tell you more about it if you'd like. No, absolutely. And so how long were you actually in the field at that office of the International Mediator? So I started in 1998 and I stayed there to mm -hmm. 2005. And by the end of my time there, I was actually an informally the junior mediator in many of the sessions. I was designed, I was co-creating, I was working with parties. And it was interesting because the field of mediation at that time was a really wild area. There were no real rules. Today, today, when you look at mediation, it's very normative, right? There's the do no harm principle. There's design, mediation support. And we have all these structures that all came out of our time in the 90s where people were just doing mediation. There was no certification yes. program. There, were no, there was no like, oh, I'm a certified mediator. All that came later. Back then, the UN used to send like high-level diplomats, go out to the bush and don't come back until you have an agreement kind of thing. The white man coming from Geneva, New York, Brussels, wherever, Washington. And I say the white man because, to be honest, that's what it was. There mm -hmm. were no real major women mediators. There were no people mm -hmm. of color. All of that came years and years later. But the reality mm -hmm. was it was a very exciting time because when something worked, went from like, I just did it to our traditional approach. <laughs> Once yeah. it worked, replicated it really quickly everywhere you went because we were trying to make sense of mass murder, ethnic mm -hmm. cleansing. People don't realize that pre the 90s, you had these great power competition and you had global hegemonic actors the mediators were the U.S. and Russia. And these were all proxy wars that you can't even call those mediation. And then the 90s came around and we moved into interstate conflict. And then all of a sudden there was space to actually mediate. And then I am blessed with the job of, and Laura, I say this tongue in cheek, but this was really the truth. 
I was the bag carrier of the media. That was my first job. And I was so happy to carry the bag. And where the mediator went, the bag had to go. So it was my ticket into every powerful mediator, mediation meeting in the Balkans. And I was like, the bag, you know, I'd raise the bag. And be like, the bag has to go with the mediator. And I was told, do not speak, do not speak. And if I can just tell a quick story, because I love the, this story, I'm carrying the bag, I'm carrying the bag, I'm going everywhere. But at the same time, as carrying the bag, I was helping the chief of staff pair these meetings. And I won't tell you what was in the bag. Maybe ask me at the end of the podcast, what was in the bag? I'll tell you. You'll be surprised. So one day we're in Bosnia, we're in Sarai, the mediators having breakfast. I don't see any staff. I don't see any high level people. I find, I take my shot. I'm like, this is my one second of fame. I'm going to tell the mediator what I think. I sit in front of the mediator at 7 a.m. He's having a cereal and I'm like... We're going to Albania and I need to tell you what I think. And the mediator, Dr. Christian Schwarzschilling puts down his spoon. He looks at me, he says, go ahead. And I'm like, okay, the, the conflict in Albania. And I don't even remember what I said, but it was like really important, right? And he looks at me at the end of, the, of my spiel here. And he says, are you done? May I get back to my cereal now? <laughs> oh my God. I, I was totally dejected, right? Yeah. But this is the power of when you work in mediation. You never know where that's going to go. Mm -hmm. When you put an idea into the air, you put it in people's minds. So we went to Bosnia. From there, we went to Macedonia. From there, we went to Albania. It was, we were on a two-week tour of the Balkans. We're sitting in the office of the prime minister of Albania and Dr. Schwarzschilling turns around and says, Mr. Prime Minister, my assistant has something he would like to share with you. And he looks at him and he says, Mr. Diaz, you have five minutes. And I got to say what I wanted to say, right? And I said it to the Prime Minister and then the mediator said, Mr. Prime Minister, democracy is about everybody being able to participate, including an assistant with some very good ideas who may never be able to say his ideas if we didn't let them. And so I can only encourage you to be more inclusive when you're trying to solve the country's problems because great ideas come from the most unsoundly areas unseen in the areas. And I was just in awe. I got my two minutes to tell the Albanian prime minister what I thought. And that has impacted me today. When I think about inclusion and participation and I'm working in countries, I work in Venezuela, I work on Cameroon, I work in Ukraine, and I'm constantly thinking how to be more inclusive, how to get negotiators to realize the richness of allowing other interest groups that are not at the table to be able to get their ideas onto the table. And so mediation mm -hmm. has transformed from a very exclusive, mm -hmm. power-hungry kind of armed groups and mediators to being more inclusive and more participatory. That was a real emotional roller coaster, Juan. Like I <laughs> that, that whole story. So thank you for sharing it. And so when you talk about this need to be more inclusive or when you're reflecting on how we can be more inclusive in these processes, what are some of the ways in which we can do that? First of all, and this, is, this goes to the heart of conflict transformation, and just for the audience, most of the mediation world thinks of mediation as a very transactional thing. Mediation is the support of a third party to conflict parties to negotiate an agreement. But what we know now is that these agreements are not always sustainable and that actually mm -hmm. after one year, over 50% of agreements just fail. So the question for us is what makes an agreement sustainable? And if you boil it down, I'm not gonna give you a one hour lesson on mediation <laughs> here. But if you boil it down, if people believe in the agreement, they will implement it. 
it's not rocket science. So in order to get people to believe in something, usually they believe in something they've participated in and they feel mm -hmm. that they were able to contribute to. And so you need to break that down and say, when people feel that agreement is theirs, then they will say, wow, that's our agreement, not Juan's agreement. And they will then protect that agreement. So if you want to be, in order to be inclusive and participatory, you need to have systems and formats whereby which people can contribute. For example, the UN might set up a broad civil society consultation. And got to be very careful because when people hear civil society, immediately the skeptics will say, oh, in every country, they're the usual suspects are all elitist anyways. That's not inclusive. It is inclusive because in reality, in most countries, if you would allow the power holders to negotiate by themselves, you're talking about maximum 20 people in the room. Then you add civil society or you start to get to a couple of hundred. And then... If you can instill in those civil society actors to go out and consult the public and to go down to the grassroots and hear what people have to say, and the UN can be very helpful with that. Regional organizations can be very helpful with that. So the real question is, where do you find the balance between not holding back political negotiations and making sure that the broad society has the ability to participate either in the co-creating of the agreement or the implementation of the agreement. They don't have to participate in every step at all times, but somewhere they want the right to decide for their own about their own future. And I think, and that's the key. If I think I am now participating in deciding my future, I will be much more engaged in that process. It makes complete sense, right? If it we're does. part of something, we must think it's genius. <laughs> right. but, the, but to be honest, the reality, this is the dark side of that. It's a lot easier to get 15 people in a room and knock some heads and go out before the media and say, hey, we got an agreement. It is a lot, lot easier, a lot more cost efficient. And we live in a world of sound bites. Yeah. So a lot of people are very good at talking about inclusion. It's much more difficult to do in practice. No, it's because, definitely true. Yeah. Yeah, because power holders don't always understand why the armed group and I want independence. And if I let somebody in, they might not be for independence. And all of a sudden, they have an equal voice that I do. And that's mm -hmm. scary. That scares people. And so power holders don't want to be inclusive we can they want to be inclusive like later after they get what they want and this yeah. is a challenge that you have how can how do you convince them that inclusion in the long run pays off and that's challenging i'm tracking to my own country the united states is deeply divided and whenever one side is in power the other side feels excluded and demonized and the question is in a world with 7 billion people, how do you bring some kind of peace process or conflict resolution process down to the very basic level of society so that people can directly engage in a peace process? And I say this in, in, in relation to the United States because I think the United States needs a form of a peace process. They really need to have a broad national dialogue on how do we want to live together. The world has changed massively. We have conflicts between urban and rural areas. We have conflicts of ideology. We have conflicts of the in the environment area. We have political conflicts, religious conflicts social class conflicts and it's getting more and more complex sorry i went off on a little bit of a tangent but okay. tangents. i think and i i think just the, the last comment here i think we in the transatlantic area seem to think that our work is always abroad and mm -hmm. we don't realize that our work is actually in our own communities if we can't get our own communities in order we have no business going abroad and telling anybody how to do things so we need to start working at home 
in order to show that we're like walking the talk. Absolutely. And let me pose this to you. So if you had an unlimited budget, unlimited infrastructure, whatever you needed, how could you enable a process such as that in a country such as the US? What would this actually look like, this a solution to the divisions you've described? I was having this conversation in a podcast on Ukraine recently, that I, not a podcast, a radio interview, sorry, recently. And I said to, to the host, agreeing to dialogue does not mean, yes, I agree with you. It means I'm willing to keep talking. And we have serious social problems in most Western democracies. We need much more dialogue and we need to fund much more dialogue at the local level. And we need to help the local level be able to connect to the national level a person in California feels completely disconnected from Washington. A person from Florida feels completely disconnected from Washington. It's extremely far away. And there are tens of millions of people between Miami and Washington, D.C. Mm -hmm. 50, 60 years ago, yeah. I was saying to, the, to people recently, because I'm from, originally from Florida, when I was a kid, there were 3 million people in the state of Florida. Now there are 20. So we are bound to have social conflict because... It's okay that we think differently, but the question is, instead of trying to solve things really at the higher level, we need to start thinking about how to solve things at the local level. And this is opposite to what we were thinking maybe 20 years ago. 20 years ago, we were having interstate conflicts and we thought we need a national dialogue to solve national problems. I'm beginning, and this is, I think, the point of conflict transformation. No, it's okay to have multiple speeds within a country and that people co-create the communities they want to live in and to begin to talk about our differences, whether it is the right to life or gun control or corruption or electoral processes or policing. Policing in Germany looks very different than policing in France. It looks very different than policing in Kenya or Singapore or the United States. So if you want to have a conversation about policing, you need to go down to that local level and say, okay, how do we want to work on policing? I find this a really interesting point, actually, that you're bringing back to the local level, because of course there is... I would say an increasing amount of research which suggests that we really lost a lot of these local institutions, whether they're different types of clubs or communities, whether they're Shreya Lions or the Cricket Club or whatever it is. So we don't really have those gathering pots anymore. And certainly, I'm sure you can relate to this as well, but in cities where people are so itinerant, especially cities like Brussels or DC, right, people are constantly coming in, going out again, and maybe it's really hard to form those communities. But even in more regional areas, are we really supporting the local watering hole where people can go and chat and work through the issues of the day? And of course, if we don't have these, there's also implications for loneliness as well as just social cohesion and having a bit of problem overall. So it's really interesting that you raise this. Yeah, and also with digitalization, we all thought, wow, I have something more in common with somebody all the way in Mauritius than with my neighbor. And wow, isn't that great? And we only saw the benefits of digitalization. We never thought about how through digitalization, we've also become disconnected with our own community. And mm -hmm. that we are not aware of what's going on in our local community, but we are aware Something horrible happened in South Africa recently. There was a murder, a mass murder in a club or something. While I think that's absolutely horrible, what does it have to do with me in Virginia that it needs to consume 20 minutes of my news cycle? And the, the reporting it as if my life will be altered by this newscast. And what it's doing is it's, it's inflicting fear and it's scary. And instead of telling me about, wow, here in Virginia, and I don't live in Virginia, I live in DC, but I'm just <laughs> making an example. Here in Virginia, we've got some problems with crime and environment. Let's look at our local conflicts and let's talk about them. And so when you come back up to what would I do 
So I would go back to working with a population. I would train a lot of facilitators to promote dialogue in communities and help people and inspire them to co-create the communities they want to live in. I would also work at engaging religious leaders and civic leaders in that conversation. I work for the United States Institute of Peace. And one of the things that I've learned while I've been here, and I've never said, this is the first time I'm ever saying this. I learned that religious leaders can be a very positive factor in conflict (laughs) management. (laughs) We have a, a religion team. Yeah. And we, we are producing guides like religion and mediation, Islamic mediation, the role of religious actors in mediation. And I have learned a lot about the wonderful work and peace building work religious actors are doing mm. around the world. And this gets a little lost because of the ideological conflicts in the United States. I would actually go to these communities and I would engage people and say, let's forget about all that national level stuff. Let's talk about what's going on in my town in Texas, in my town in Illinois, in my town in New Hampshire, and let's draft small kind of commitment agreements about how we want to live. How do we want our police? What do we want from our police in our community? Because policing is a big issue in the United States, right? And I'm like, So recently, I don't know if you've seen that there's been a high increase in crime, it's created anxiety. And so there's a lot of conflict now over the police. I'm like, well, well, involve them in that community dialogue. Involve them. I have been, I have actually talked to some police officers and I've heard they're really scared as well. It's not like they're sitting around thinking, oh, we don't get what's going on. Taking it away from the United States, what I would do in other countries is I would have a a local security dialogue. And I would invite local leaders, religious leaders, police leaders, local advocates, and I would engage them in, okay, what are the challenges we are facing in our community? And let's see if we can address it right here. Now, the problem that you have, and you put your finger right on it without even thinking about it, You said if you had all the money in the world, first of all, we don't have all the money in the world. And second of all, I get the impression, I don't know. I get the impression that the way money is spent is far removed from the local level. So you're getting budget decisions at higher levels that don't necessarily take into account the actual needs of the local community. I could be wrong. (laughs) I don't know, but I have a feeling that the complexity of managing urban areas versus rural areas, we're going to have to tackle that. People in rural communities live differently than people in urban areas all over the world. We also need to think about how we we work on the build environment. How do we live in urban areas? Our needs are completely different than a small little town in the middle of middle America or Canada or Australia. And if we want people to relate, we also have to exchange with them and understand them. Why are they afraid of some of the things that we seem to think are for our own good or for our own protection or what we need? And so we're gonna need an urban rural conversation not just in the United States. I think this is across the world because the world is becoming much more concentrated in urban areas. And I I don't know the statistics and I'm not gonna quote them here, but I heard that by 2050, a certain percentage, like an overwhelming percentage of people- It was like Monty or something really crazy. Something really crazy. And so I think we need more mediators, more dialogue facilitators. We need more investment in reconciliation understanding that people are sometimes traumatized by the conflicts that they're experiencing. No doubt that people in Ovalde, Texas are massively traumatized. People in South Africa, in Ethiopia, where they're experiencing massive violence are traumatized. In Ukraine, now you say to them, oh, let's have a dialogue. 
Ukrainians cannot even hear Russian without having triggers. And so before you even try dialogue, you're going to have to think about trauma healing. Yeah. Tiptoeing a little bit into the controversy. <laughs> right now, women in America are traumatized. Of course, yeah. And political leaders on both sides of the aisle, I'm not sure that they get the political, the human sensitivity around this. Right. So before you even engage in a dialogue, you got to prepare the dialogue. You have to make sure that people feel that they're going to enter a space. And in that space, they're not going to automatically be called right wing, left wing, wong, race, whatever, white, male, religious, radical, fanatic. You hear these words in society. They're like giant, like verbal attacks from different sides. Yeah. And people don't realize the power of the violence of words. Absolutely. And actually, this came up in my PhD research as well, because I was speaking with a lot of Brexiteers. And these people who voted leave really consistently said that one of the things that entrenched them into voting that way was being called racist or stupid. And they said, I'll show them. There was a sort of sense of that, but also the sense of why are these people hurting me and our relationship? We've been friends for so long. Why are they now wrapping me up in this like stupid racist label? And so, of course, it was very difficult to continue having conversations between them and people who were voting remain in their social circles. So it's, yeah, I think we really underestimate how violent these words can be. It's really interesting how we use these labels to, on the one hand, reveal structural inequalities and the other it renders it sometimes more difficult to get people to lower their barriers perhaps and actually have these open dialogues so I don't know what the answer is that you're definitely a much more of an expert in this than I am so here's a really great example and I would encourage listeners to to think about it so a good friend of mine and former mentor Paula Green who passed away unfortunately a few months ago when Donald Trump won the election, mm -hmm. she was shocked because she was not in favor of Donald Trump. And she comes from liberal Massachusetts, one of the mm -hmm. most liberal towns in Massachusetts. The bluest. The bluest yeah. of the blue. She was in shock. Long story short, she dedicated the next five years of her life to creating a dialogue with the most, let's say, staunch Trump supporters. And she, she reached out to an organization in Cole County, Kentucky. That's what she called it, like coal miners and up in the hills. And I don't remember the name of her project. It was something like Bridges Across the Hills or something like that. She won a human rights award prize for her initiative. She reached out to them and she said, I am ultra liberal and I really want to understand why you think the way you do. And they had email conversations and then they decided to have a meeting. And these people from Kentucky got on a bus and they went to her town in Massachusetts. And you could, she used to tell the story over and over again. I, I remember hearing it the first time when she won her Human Rights Award Prize. And she said when they arrived, they were so scared. They had always heard of Massachusetts, the liberal bastion. And they were afraid that they were going to be physically attacked. And what greeted them were a bunch of people with potluck kind of food and they all took these people in yeah and they had this spectacular weekend of confidence building and one year later they did it in the other direction same story the massachusetts thought they were going to be beat up when they arrived in kentucky as well because the ones who had visited were nice but now they were going deep into Trump country. And she tells this story and she says, and then we got there and they were human beings and 
Mm. Yes, they thought differently. And she structured, they structured the conversations. They protected the people. They made sure that people were safe. And the final part of her story is that at the end of the project, she asked her counterparts, what had changed? Here comes comfort transformation. What had changed? And one colleague said, before I met you, I would have run you out of town before sunset and told you you were not welcome to make sure to leave by sunset. If you would move to my community now, I would defend your right to live here and express your point of view in a democratically and community way. And that was a huge transformation for them, that it was okay to live next door to a liberal Democrat for the first time. And she said she felt she had made a difference. She felt she had understood more. And she said she could only encourage people to set up initiatives. It doesn't mean to accost somebody on the street. Oh, you're the opposite of me. I want to talk to you. It's yeah. more like to engage in a structured dialogue with people who think diametrically opposed to you. Mm. And for the sole purpose, that's what dialogue is, for the sole purpose of understanding how the other side perceives the world. And so that when you speak, you are making an informed choice about the words you are using vis-a-vis -vis the other side. I think that is needed not only in the United States, but all over the world. I think it's needed with Russia, with mm -hmm. China. I think it's needed with Iran, with the Venezuelans, with the Cubans. And to believe in the power of dialogue as the central vehicle by which people begin to understand each other may open up space for more comfort transformation. No, I, I definitely agree with you. And it's, I was reflecting as you were talking that earlier I mentioned that we didn't have these cultural institutions where people meet and talk anymore. And I did forget that religion existed, that churches exist. It's quite funny, but it's, I have seen people try to do this around things such as division and polarization in the UK, especially around Brexit, which is obviously less than the news nowadays, but at the time. And I guess what really alarmed me about one of these dialogues that I attended as one of the experts is that everybody they'd brought in agreed with each other already. It was one-sided. And so you basically had a group of people who all said, all right, here is a problem that is shared in our community. We all agree. Now, how do we fix the other people? And I think that is a very, that can be a very big risk. So it sounds like to have these dialogues in society where we have very different people coming to learn and draw from and understand each other, that really needs to be a facilitated and or sponsored process so that it's intentional and that it's not just the self-serving, oh, yeah, we all agree anyway. Now what do we do about the others? It's going to be because we, we don't get any further understanding of other people in that way. Yes, and I think that we should move away from the question of do we all agree? The thing is, do we understand how the other side perceives what I'm saying, what they're saying, what kind of lived experience to, are they having in their own communities, in their own lives? For example, maybe tiptoe backing in, back into the controversy, I find that even though I believe in the right to a woman to choose, I can wholeheartedly tell my friends who are different from me, members of my own family, I say, I think abortion is horrible. Mm -hmm. And I wish to God that no woman would have an abortion. Absolutely, that we can agree on. I think where we start to differ is how do we get there? How do we get there? And I have family members who disagree with me. And we, one time in a conversation, we agreed that the world would be better off without abortions. We yep. just, we disagree on how to get there. 
You just need to prevent the involuntary or unwanted pregnancy part of it. So when you begin to talk about common areas, because I come from an extremely conservative Republican family, and I am not that conservative and Republican. And so I have had to have conversations with family members. And I always think, how do I want to be treated when I'm having a conversation and expressing myself? And this is the same in any conflict, in any world conflict, right? That we forget that people were not born with the positions that they hold. They came through a process of evolving intellectual engagement to the conclusion that the positions they take are in their best interests. So why would they give that? Sometimes people say expand the pie, find the win-win. I'm a little jaded about win-win, all right? I don't really necessarily think there's such a thing of win-win, especially not in areas of where in order for me to get what I want, you have to give up what you want kind of thing. That's why I hate Supreme mm-hmm. Court decisions because they're mm-hmm. so black, white, yes, no, right? There's no place for a national dialogue on certain issues, right? Sometimes you have to say, can we change the question? Can we work on things that we can agree on? And maybe as we work on those things, this other stuff will get less controversial and become less important. And when we are doing a dialogue, it's important to think through, for example, I would never say we're going to do a dialogue on Brexit. I don't think that's helpful. Yeah. Oh, you're against Brexit. Oh, you're in favor of Brexit. Okay, dialogue over. (laughs) And the question is, and instead of having a debate about who's right or wrong, Mm -hmm. instead of having a debate about whether my morality is higher than your morality, Mm -hmm. let's talk about what are some things that really are really important to us. Yeah. And one of them is, for example, we all want to live in a world without violence. Ideally, right? We all want our kids to go to school in a safe environment. We don't want our kids being attacked verbally, physically, ideologically. And this requires us to be a little less political. And that's really difficult. And so a lot of times when I'm in a mediation, I tell people, Here's my number one rule. We can only talk about things that we in this room have the power to change. We cannot talk about anything that we don't have the power to change. And immediately people are like, oh, we can't talk about anything. (laughs) That's a good rule. It's a good rule. Yeah, I used to, when I was in Kosovo doing dialogue, they would be like, we'd like to talk about NATO's military intervention in Serbia. I was like, we can do that, (laughs) but we can't really change that. Yeah. I want to talk about Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Okay, and do you have any influence over Russia? No. Do you have any influence over the Ukraine? No. Do you have family in Ukraine? No. So then why do you want to talk about this issue? Well, we can talk about, we have a a rat problem in Georgetown. (laughs) And I have a real problem with restaurant owners and I'm getting really irritated. (laughs) This example seems very real, Juan. Have you been chased down by rats recently? (laughs) And you hear about it in the newspaper, right? There's a conflict here in DC. We have a lot of homelessness in DC. We have a lot of violence in DC at the moment. And... I find our political leaders are more worried about the Biden administration and Republicans in other states. And I'm like, can we talk in DC about what's happening in DC? We have Mm -hmm. violence, we have homelessness, we have rats, we have transportation issues. Can we just focus on our local issues and let the rest of the world figure themselves out? And if we did that, if if every community would work on their own issues, I believe we would have a much stronger federal system. 
in America and in other countries. It's about, connect, it's about connecting the dots, right? So we need a vehicle, coming back to your question about how do you create a dialogue in such a big state like the United States. So you have all these dialogues going on. You can't just leave them there. They have to inform other people. Now, the jaded people listening will say, you have ideologists, the extremes, let's call them the extremes. Okay, yeah. They won't let you, and they're really, ex- the word re- radical, extreme. Oh my God, they use words <laughs> that, that I, on both sides, on all yeah, sides. Yeah. I'm like, okay, yes, in my world, they're called spoilers. Yeah. Right? And we have those people who gain from conflicts. You're going to have those. But there's an African proverb that says, when spider webs unite, they can hold back even a lion. And the idea is if you can create hundreds and thousands of dialogues that are focused on problem solving and community and empowerment and the strength in diversity and the strength of participation and inclusion, and all these dialogues are interconnected somehow and they're all channeling the results of their dialogue upward, I think that you would create a very positive impact in any state. Absolutely. And I also just love that image of a very confused lion being held back by spider webs. That's a fantastic proverb. (laughs) Thank you. Now, I have pretty much just thrown out my questions. We've been on a real journey with this, but there is one of my questions that I would like to ask you, Phil, if I may. And that is just to understand what is it that inspires you in this type of work that you do? So I grew up in a home where we had a boogeyman. His name was Fidel Castro. Okay. The world, every problem in my family always went back to the dictatorship of Fidel Castro. My father was angry at the world. He was angry at Fidel Castro. My father never got to go back to his homeland. He was in exile all his life. He didn't feel very included in American society. And I found that... I had family in Cuba who were demonized for staying because they were communists. And I went back after the fall of the Soviet Union, Cuba changed a bit and then there was more travel to Cuba. And I went and I met my aunt in Cuba and she was a regular human being full of love and emotions. And I realized that this conflict was holding dad back. My dad was not free to live the full potential of his life because he was consumed by a conflict that he had no power to influence. And that's a motivation, that's a big motivation to me. Mm -hmm. I believe that every person is entitled to live their life to the fullest potential. And so if conflict is holding us back, I want to free us from those conflicts. That's for me is really important. Whenever I meet people and we are engaged in a conversation and all of a sudden they have a moment of aha, they feel so much freer. They're able to think like, I'll just give you one example the concept of the conflict spiral. And when people finally get that you choose to be in the conflict spiral, you're not forced to be in a conflict spiral. And it's a moment when I tell people, were you ever in a situation where you were constantly fighting with somebody and you finally said, regardless of what happens, I accept all consequences but I don't choose to engage anymore. The feeling of release and satisfaction that comes, even if it means divorce or separation or never talking to that person, you just accept the consequences and then you move on and rebuild your life. 
And the conflict spiral, and if I could have helped my dad to get out of that conflict spiral and say, focus on your life. Mm. And I get these moments with other people in conflict that they come to me and they're like, wow, you get me. It's a moment of empathy. It's a moment of community. It's a moment of transformation. And I feel it feels really great to say to somebody, I'm going to hold your hand through that journey. And if you need support, I'm going to support you on that. And so for me, it's, yeah, the top of the line to be able to say to somebody, wow, they are better off today simply because I was there with some kind of conflict resolution tool to help them process the magnitude of their conflict. And so that's what gets me going. That was a beautiful story, Juan. And I'm laughing to myself a little bit because before we started recording today, you asked me if I wanted the nice, fluffy, inspirational (laughs) stories or the real story. And everything you're telling me is very inspirational. I thought you were going to give me the the bad side, but no, it's beautiful. So thank you for sharing. So for those who are interested in learning more about you and your work, where can they find you? I work for the United States Institute of Peace. We work in many countries around the world. If you are like me, you probably have somebody in your family who comes from a different country. Mm-hmm. And maybe those people are also in conflict. And maybe you've also been thinking about how to help those people who are relatives or friends living in other countries. So we have something called the Global Campus. If you go to USIP's website, All of USIP's conflict resolution online courses are for free. You can register. You can take those courses. I have a course. If you want to know more about my kind of work, there's one called Peace Mediation. It's a course that talks to you about mediation, negotiation, the role of mediators, the role of conflict transformation, the role of dialogue. I encourage you to just go to USIP's website and sign up for the Peace Mediation course. There's a dialogue course, how to create design and implement a community dialogue. Mm -hmm. There is a peace building course. There is a gender course. There is a religion and conflict course. There is an arts and peace building course. I encourage you, it is free. You don't have to pay for it. You can go online and you will have people at USIP who will interact with you. And we do live sessions. On August 10th, I will be doing a live session for USIP for those people who are registered on the global campus. So if you want to hear more and talk about mediation, you can register on the Peace Mediation course, and then you will be invited to the live course in August that I'll be talking about. So not many institutes give their courses away for free. So I encourage you to take advantage of that. Fabulous. And I will attest to the quality of your teaching, obviously. (laughs) Otherwise, I wouldn't be talking to you today. Thank you so much. Of course. Now, very last question, because you told me to ask this last. You were talking about being the bag carrier in mediation early on. What was in the bag, Juan? What was in the bag? So that was hilarious. (laughs) They, everybody would ask me, and I made this running joke that it was top secret. And 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 I'm not joking, the bag had to be in every meeting. The mediator would, if I got left behind, he would say, make space for Mr. Diaz, he's carrying my bag. (laughs) And so the bag was a yellow bag. It was made out of cloth. It was from the German postal service because my, the mediator was the last minister of telecommunication and post in Germany before it was privatized. Hmm. And in the bag was, a newspaper of the day, the daily newspaper, the Frankfurter Allgemeine, because he was German, the list of every restaurant in the town we were going to, <laughs> and a, the equivalent of a granola bar in case he got hungry. And these were the three things in that bag. And people <laughs> asked me, what, and I, t- I would tell them top secret, but then, yeah. In a moment, he's meeting like the governor of some obscure place. Yep. And he would take out his little list <laughs> and say, oh, let's meet here. And he was able to <laughs> tell people where his favorite restaurant was or where we could meet. Yep. And, he, and the newspaper was because he had to stay up to date on what was going on. And we had to make sure that the bag was updated every day. It had to have the list for the day, it had to have the newspaper for the day, and we had to have 
definitely the equivalent of a granola bar, sometimes two or three. And sometimes, because people may be laughing as they hear this, we would be in a meeting for like eight hours. Yeah. And in the middle of the meeting, while people were talking and yelling about refugee return, all of a sudden, the mediator would turn to his side. Everybody's listening intently. He would delve into the back. He would pull out the little granola bar and he'd pass it under the table and he'd say to me, it's going to be a long meeting. And then he would say, I know you laugh about me and these little bars. And, and so it was a running joke in the mediation team that if we were hungry, we knew exactly where we could raid to get food. And they had marmalade or jam. They were really thin. They're very famous in Germany where he comes from. He'd bring 20 of them. And on a couple of occasions, he would look at me and said, starving today because he was angry that we would make fun of the bars but it was my ticket into a world i met presidents prime ministers special envoys all because i had this bag in my hand great story and my last comment to the audience listening mediation and the magic around mediation is created Mm -hmm. it's an artificial world when you are in these conflicts you're thinking about the parties themselves and as long as they have the need to talk it's our job to make sure they're talking so get away from the mentality of we got another meeting got another meeting got another meeting engage in the process and be present 100 percent of your time and if that means creating an environment. For my boss, it was really important that if he needed to have a private conversation, he knew where to take these people. He didn't want to get stranded without a logistical environment. If there was something in Germany going on that might disrupt his mediation, he needed to know about it. If we were hungry, we couldn't focus. So he made sure that we had food. It wasn't for him, for us. That was the joke. That's what we, the staff, didn't get. He wanted to make sure that the parties had the best environment to talk. The environment is 80% of successful dialogue. If people have an environment conducive to talking, they're going to open themselves up and they're going to talk. And so that's our job in, in designing a dialogue or a peace process is to make sure that we create the necessary environment by which people say, wow, I feel like I need to get something off my chest. And so I encourage people to spend more time on logistics and realize that logistics are the mediation and they are the dialogue because they're Mm -hmm. the enablers of those. Excellent. Juan, thank you so much for joining us here today. It's been wonderful. Even if we went on a whole tangent, I wasn't expecting. It was fabulous. And for everyone else, until next time, this is Laura May with a Conflict Tipping Podcast from Mediate.com. See you next time. Thank you very much for having me. This podcast has been brought to you by Mediate.com. For more information about Mediate.com products and services, please visit us at www.mediate.com.